If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 25, beginning with the first verse. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us. Instead, go and sell the oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others came and said, Sir, sir, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. The wedding. The wedding is a symbol of God's commitment to us. Matter of fact, over and over in the New Testament, matter of fact, ten major themes, ten major times, the bridegroom is described as Christ, and the bride is described as the church. And God likens it to a wedding. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Paul says this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery because I am talking about Christ and the church. I'm talking about the marriage of Christ and the church. Now, as we will go through and look at the background, the Jewish background of the wedding, we'll see some interesting parallels then we can begin to kind of take passages like we just read in Matthew 25 and make a little bit more sense of them. Also, another familiar passage that we'll look at is John 14, which actually is an allusion to a wedding as well. Now, does anybody know what I'm wearing this morning? Does anybody know what this is called? Prayer shawl? And there's a, another word for it. Anybody know? A talent. Okay? And this is what the rabbi would wear, and it's what you would wear. Matter of fact, many of the Orthodox Jews would wear it to a service, or the men at least would. And when you get married, the man would wear a, uh, a talent like this, as well as the rabbi. And it was kind of a symbolic gesture or sim- symbolism of the blessing of God, that you were underneath Yeshua, or really in our sense Yeshua, but in their sense Yahweh God and His blessings and His covering. Now, on the end, these are called, matter of fact, somebody knew what this was last service. I was very impressed. Anybody know what these are called? All right, these are the zitzit. All right, and they are basically to be reminders as the rabbi or as uh, the person who would wear it of the laws, of the, the talents. As a matter of fact, Jesus probably wore something of this nature, and it was a reminder of each of the laws of the covenant given in the Old Testament. So as to be reminded of the law of which we live under and the blessing of God himself. So this is just one of the things they would wear. Also, there would also be used a cup, a silver cup that would be given uh, during the wedding. And twice this cup would be drank from. Matter of fact, the first time we'll see in just a moment, it would be the first time the bride or the woman would receive it as her acceptance of the covenant and the male would drink from it as well. And then later on we see, what does Jesus do? Jesus makes a new covenant with us, and the Bible tells us 
uh, that is a blood covenant, and he shares it with us in Matthew, I believe in Luke chapter 22, and then in Matthew 26. And then at the end of the service, uh, this cup would be drank from again, thus sealing uh, the nuptial vows. Now, let's learn a little bit about Jewish history for just a moment, if you would, with me, and kind of put your thinking caps on. And let me say this. <clears throat> I'm going to give you the transliteration. In other words, this isn't the actual Hebrew word. Okay, ancient Hebrew, uh, which the Bible was written in, the Old Testament was written in, and then actually the New Testament was written in uh, ancient Greek. And so it's not even actually the languages that are spoken today. They're basically uh, pretty significant modifications. But what we are doing is we're transliterating. We're taking their words and we're trying to put them in an English version and then we're giving you a pronunciation. So if you look these words up, you'll find out that a lot of times they're spelled differently because this is a transliteration. And so we're trying to do it with vowels and consonants that we don't always have. Uh, matter of fact, here's a little interesting word for you. There's still about 300 words in the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew language that uh, scholars still don't know what they mean. Uh, so it becomes very difficult with the pronunciation sometimes. But we're going to do the best we can, and we're going to look at the transliteration of these words today in the order of the Jewish wedding process. Now, the first thing that the Jewish rabbi would usually do when the people would come together, whether it be a service or whether it be a wedding, he would quote the Shema. And the Shema is found in Deuteronomy 6.4. And it's this, Hear, O hear, Israel, the Lord God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And some translations may say all your strength. And then Jesus, when he was asked, of course, said, What is the greatest commandment, Jesus? And he said, The Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. That would be the beginning of the wedding or the beginning of any pretty much service. But then we would enter into the first process, the Shadukin. The Shadukin would be the literally the first step of the marriage process, and it's literally this. And we see an example of it in Genesis chapter 24, verse 1 through 4, when Abraham tells his lead servant, Eliezer, to go and find a mate for Isaac. Go find a wife for him in his own country. So Eliezer has some things that he's certainly looking for. And we know this is probably one of the things he was looking for was a woman who was, had a heart of service, uh, a woman who had a heart of humility. And he finds Rebecca, and then he extends the offer to her. He was, in a sense, the matchmaker. That's the first step of this. Usually the fathers would get together, and they would decide these are the two that need to be put together. Now, in, in many instances, the woman and the man had a little bit to say about it, but they couldn't, the kind of the Western thought that they would just kind of go find someone on their own was a pretty foreign thought. So this is found as the beginning of the, of the process, and this is again called the Shadukian. And then the Kutubah, or the Kutubah is kind of how it's pronounced, kind of how it's said, and this would be the marriage contract, so to speak, or the prenuptial agreement would be a better way to describe it. And you would come and there would be certain things that are committed at this point. Now, the primary reason this was done, and Moses did this, uh, was for the protection of the woman. In case the man at any point ever decided uh, to leave her, in case the man died, uh, there was something called the mohar, or the bridal price that was to be paid. And that was written in to the ketubah. And it was written in there, and it was to uh, protect, again, the woman uh, from 
any kind of improprieties or in a situation where she would be left alone and not able to provide for herself and her children. Now, the mohar initially was the bride price that was paid. And if you could afford it, you could pay it right up front. And it was usually pretty expensive. Now, in Genesis 29, we see that, um, you see that Jacob, how he goes and he pays seven years of labor. Uh, and then he finds out, oh, got the wrong wife. Uh, you're going to have to do another seven uh, for your wife Rebecca now at this point. And uh, you will remember that story about uh, how that occurred. But nevertheless, or excuse me, that was with Rachel. But nevertheless, that's what occurred. That was kind of the, the mohar or the bride price. But very often people couldn't afford that, so they'd have to do something. They'd have to commit to seven years of labor, or they'd have to commit to pay it out. And um, it would be held by the father, and he might have uh, get some of it, a little bit of it, but it was primarily held in case there was a need, in case the man did not live up to his obligations, so to speak. And so there, there was a pretty significant price, and it was meant as a primarily a protection for the woman uh, just as Jacob served Laban. Now, the third part would be the Kedushian, which is in Hebrew literally means the sanctification. It was the betrothal period. Sometimes we call it uh, the engagement period. It was a time where they were given the gold ring of something or something of great value, and it was actually the spiritual bonding. Now, it is much more significant than the engagement that we would have here in the States now today because today you can break off an engagement and, Pretty much probably the most you'll lose out of it is a ring. Okay, there's no legal obligations. But at this point, once they accept the covenant, once they partake of the cup, it seals it. And they are legally, so to speak, spiritually married. Now, it's not physically consummated till after uh, the nuptial vows that we'll look at later. But anywhere from six months to a year, a year and a half, sometimes as much as two years, they would go through this betrothal period. And during this period, it was a time of sanctification. It was a time of reflection and preparation for marriage. Matter of fact, they would come in and they would partake of the wine glass. The glass of wine would be offered and the husband would drink for it. And then he would offer it to the bride. And if she drank from it, that was symbolic of the covenant being sealed, that she was fully accepting her commitment and her responsibility. Next, the woman would be go through a mikvah. A mikvah simply means immersion. Uh, matter of fact, I heard one Jew call it, they ought to call him uh, John the Immerser, not John the Baptist, because there weren't any Baptists back then. But nevertheless, it was the mikvah. It was the immersion. And it was the symbolic cleansing. And the mikvah was used in some of the other instances as well. Uh, we know that the high priest would go through a, a mikvah before he would prevent the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. Next, uh, there would be the responsibilities during this time, during the betrothal period. And what the responsibilities would be for the man would be this. First of all, he would go and he would add another room either to his home or more likely to his father's home. It was very normal for girls to be married somewhere between the age of 12 and 16 and boys to be married between 16 and 24. Those were kind of the normal standards of which Jews were placed together. So the boy might not be but 18 years old. The girl might not be but 14 or 15. And typically he would still be at home. And so what would be, what would be required would be for him to go and build on a room to the existing house, unless he had a home of his own, and still he was required to go and to build another room. And this room was to be nicer than what she was living in. And then at some point in time, the father would determine, hey, this room is ready, 
and then at that point, the groom would head back for his bride. That might be, it might take a year to get that room ready. We, it just depended, depending on how far they away, how much money they had, if they had to do it on their own. But I want you to turn with me to John chapter 14 and notice the language that's used right there in John chapter 14. This is a very familiar passage that all of us have heard before. We hear a lot of times at weddings and funerals. This is actually a wedding passage right here. Or this is actually a wedding comparison that Jesus is using in John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house are many rooms. Notice the analogy he's using here. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and will take you to be with me that you may be where I am. This was all a part of the groom's responsibility during uh, the Kedushuan or the betrothal period. Next uh, would be the Nishuan, which would be the marriage itself or the nuptial vows. Uh, and that word literally means to carry. It was the blessing. Matter of fact, they would do a couple of things. The first thing that they would do, they would have them come in and the rabbi would do a Shiva Brakos, which means seven blessings. And there would be seven blessings pronounced over them. As a matter of fact, typically the woman, and maybe with her mother or her sister, would surround the husband, and they may, in certain instances, rotate around as the blessings were given. That number seven was used because of completion. It was the perfected number, just as the world was created in seven days. And on the seventh day, God rested. That number right there uh, of blessings is still used today, even in Jewish weddings. Then there would be the final act of drinking from the cup, drinking the wine from the cup, sealing the final aspect of the covenant. And then uh, Jews later on added another tradition that they do today. It would be the breaking of the glass. And they would put a, they would put a piece of glass on the floor, uh, put a covering over it, and then the man would break the glass. And uh, that was actually in symbolism of the destruction of the temple. That even on the best day of your life, and remember Yom Kippur was the greatest day, but second only to Yom Kippur would be the day of the wedding. It was kind of a personal Yom Kippur would be this day of wedding. As a matter of fact, it was a fulfillment of the law of the mitzvah at this point. But it was to remember the destruction of the temple. Even on your best day, we remember the difficult times that our people have been through. Now, uh, let's look and see some of the New Testament parallels. Well, we first of all, we see the provision of the Father, and we see that in John chapter 14, how the Father prepared and how the Father uh, went ahead and, and had made the choice, made the match by providing the Son. Number two, we see the acceptance of the marriage. When we come to God Almighty, we must come and receive Christ. There, must, there had to be some kind of mohar paid. And so Christ paid that once and for all. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.20, You are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. The marriage covenant tells us in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called by My name will receive the promise of inheritance, that He has died as a ransom or as a price, as a mohar, to set them free from the sins under the first covenant. So they enter into a covenant. So do we enter into a covenant with God. The sanctification or the dedication. Luke twenty-two twenty. The cup. Is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. As Jesus offered to his disciples, 
A new covenant I give you. A new cup I give you. As often as you drink of this cup, if you commit to bear this cup and to drink of this cup, so do you commit to follow me, to trust me, and to put your complete faith and confidence in what I have done and what I will do for you upon the cross through my blood. Then we see the baptism, just as in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, as John baptized with water, so were we baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then we see kind of the parallels here in Matthew chapter 25. So let's look at Matthew 25 again with this basic understanding of the Semitic culture and the Jewish wedding. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, remember what the bridegroom. Who is the bridegroom? That's Christ. And who is the, who is the bride? The church. So here's a symbolism or here is Christ, an example of Christ. And five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. Well, if you remember in Matthew chapter 7, what does Jesus say? The wise man is the man who builds his house upon the rock. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And when the rains come, the sand's washed away. The wise man built his house upon the rock, upon Christ, upon his teachings, upon the faith, not upon your thoughts, not upon your philosophies or your ideas of what you think should be right or what you think things should be. And Jesus goes on here and he says, The wise, however, took, excuse me, the five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps. And let me say this right now. This, uh, we are trying to interpret in this parable. And anytime you start to interpret parables, there is a, a lot of latitude in there because you're already working with an analogy. So we're trying to interpret this. But I'm going to give you kind of a traditional interpretation of what some scholars believe some of these analogies represent, some of these symbols represent. The wise one took the oil in their jars along with their lamps. Now, their lamps might be viewed as their faith, their belief system, uh, the oil being that of the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. The bridegroom took the oil in the jars with the lamps, and the bridegroom had been a long time in coming. They all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at midnight, the cry rang out. Well, you know what happens in the Jewish wedding? <clears throat> the man has gone away, the groom has gone away, and he's been preparing what? The house. And that may have taken six months, may have been a year, but the bride was supposed to stay ready because the groom is coming back. Well, when the groom's coming back, usually the best man, so to speak, would move ahead, and, and many times this actually was at night on purpose uh, because of some other symbolism, and um, they would be coming back at night, so it was very, uh, very normal a lot of times for the bride to be asleep and maybe even the, her, her party as well, but the shofar would be blown, the shofar, which was the ram's horn, and that was the midnight cry that's being described there. So the shofar is blown in annunciation of the groom who is coming. At midnight, the cry rang out, and here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up, and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. Now, that passage becomes problematic if we just look at it on the surface. But if you think, if it's the Spirit of God, if it's the grace of God that they've received, we recognize that that cannot be transferred. I can share the message. I can share how you can receive the grace and forgiveness, but I can't grant grace and receive and forgiveness to you. You must go to the groom. You must go to the Savior. And so here is probably the analogy that's being portrayed right here. They say, no, 
We do not have enough for both of us. Instead, go and who sell, go to the one who sells the oil and buy some for yourself. You'll have to go and get some. Mine cannot be transferred. Just as simply going to church does not make you a believer in Christ. It does not enter you into the covenant. Just because your parents are believers, just because they've accepted the grace and the forgiveness of God, just because they've made the commitment, it does not transfer. It's something we must receive ourselves. Then later, uh, they went, and while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom actually arrived. The announcement has come. He's on his way. They run out to try to get the oil. They go out to try to get themselves ready. But the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, which is symbolic of heaven. And the door was shut. Later they came, Sir, sir, open the door. But he said, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So what do we see? We see that the Father sends the groom to get the bride. That one day God will send Christ to retrieve his own, to recall his own. We see that the bride must be ready. The church must be ready. Those who know the truth must receive the truth and allow the blood of Christ that was poured from his veins to be applied to us. No longer is it settled by the sacrifice of animals. But the Bible tells us in Hebrew that Christ paid the price once and for all if we receive and commit to His covenant of grace. Next, the blowing of the horn, the shofar of the announcement. We must be ready. The horn will be blown. And lastly, that we will be carried away to the wedding and the wedding feast. What about you this morning? Are you ready? Have you come to the place to where you've recognized that, that Christ is the bridegroom? That there's a provision that's been made for you. The question is, will you receive it? Will you be ready for it? God wants you in His kingdom. He wants to be in relationship with you. But you know what that necessitates? That necessitates you coming to the place where you realize your lamp isn't enough. The knowledge, the wisdom, the good deeds that you have are not sufficient to forgive your sins and to cover you and make you acceptable for the groom. You must transfer your trust of any deeds that you could do, of any philosophies you think that are making you good enough to what Christ has done upon the cross and receive His grace and forgiveness. There must be a transfer and a commitment to this new covenant, this covenant of grace that has been supplied by the blood of Jesus that sanctifies us, that places the Holy Spirit within us, that prepares us that one day the groom will come. The shofar will be blown. Will you be ready? It's not enough just to put your name on a church roll to attend. The question is, have you ever made a commitment to the offer that's been extended to you in Christ. We're going to receive communion here in a moment. But communion is only symbolic of a commitment that we should have already made. Just as that bride and that groom in the Shadukan had already participated in the cup of the new covenant, they had already been legally sealed, the next cup was simply symbolic at the time of the vows. The commitment had already been made. My question to you this morning have you made the commitment to Christ? 
Have you transferred your trust from anything that you can do, from any of your own merits, any of your own deeds, to what Christ has done upon the cross? Do you believe He's not a way, but He's the only way? Just as we read in that passage a while ago in John 14, if we would have read the next two verses, you know what they would say? Jesus said this in John 14, 6, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I am the groom, and I will take the bride. But you can only receive this covenant. You can only receive this gift through me. Have you received it? Is there a time in your life, just like in your marriage, if you were married, that you made a commitment? You stood before God and you say, I choose to receive you, to make a covenant commitment, and everything that I have becomes part of you. I will take your name, the name of Christ. I become a Christian, a follower of Christ, and my life is yours, both legally and spiritually. God, you now possess me, and I take your name I make my covenant with you and I put all my faith and trust in you to save me.